Welcome to The R Word. We're here to talk about reparations and the church in Northwest Arkansas. Last time, in episode two, we talked to Greg Thompson about his book, Reparations. Today, in episode three, we will talk to Jamar Tisby about the Witness Foundation. Let's listen to a clip about the Witness Foundation. As black Christians, we have these visions, we have these passions, but what we don't have are the resources to make them a reality. For such a time as this, for such a time as this modern era of the civil rights movement, I so often get the question, when it comes to racial justice, what do we do? Well, there's a lot we can do, but we're offering you one concrete way to get involved, and that's support Black-led Christian ministries like The Witness. And the only question is, will you be a witness? Now, let me introduce my friend Jamar. Jamar Tisby received a PhD from the University of Mississippi and is a best-selling author, podcast host, and founder of The Witness Incorporated. Jamar has written two books, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism, and How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Towards Racial Justice. And he co-hosts the Pass the Mic podcast. So Jamar, thanks for being with us today. It's a pleasure, Lowell. Thank you for having me. The, the pleasure is ours, Jamar. Uh, first, can you share some of your story with us? Who are you and why are you here today? <laughs> it's a long story. The short version is I am a black Christian who has learned the hard way about the enduring racism in some circles of white Christianity. Uh, I became a Christian in high school through the ministry of a white evangelical youth group, um, went to undergrad at the University of Notre Dame, where I actually got exposed to something called Reformed Theology. Then after I graduated, I became a teacher in the Teach for America program. That's how I got from the Midwest, where I grew up, down to the Deep South in the Delta on the Arkansas side. So, so we share a state here. And um, I came face to face with the crushing injustice of extreme concentrated generational poverty. Uh, where I live in the Delta is one of the poorest counties in the entire nation. Um, the poverty rate is double the, the state average, which is already higher than the national average. Um, and all of the issues that go along with poverty uh, took on a human face because it came walking into my classroom on two legs uh, every day. So I learned about functional homelessness, and we had a student who um, had a roof over his head every night but didn't know which roof it was going to be any, any particular night. Uh, he would stay with various relatives and friends of the family, uh, depending on the situation. We could always tell when he had stayed with his grandmother and grandfather because he came in with a clean uniform, his homework done, he had a good night's sleep. We could tell when he had stayed the night with someone else because he was wearing the uniform from the day before or more. Uh, he hadn't done any of his homework and probably hadn't gotten much sleep the night before. It wasn't from a lack of care from the adults in his life. It was just the exigencies of, of, of their daily struggle for survival made it hard to take care of um, a young child. Uh, we also had you know students who came in every day, didn't have food. Their idea of um, breakfast was whatever they got at the gas station that morning, which was 
chips or pickles or juice that had, you know, enormous amounts of sugar, nothing healthy. So we always had to have breakfast um, at the school just because you can't learn if you're hungry. Um, so all of those things. And I started asking, well, what does my faith have to do with this? What does my faith say to these issues of real material poverty and injustice. And in the circles I'd been in, these evangelical and reform circles, they didn't speak explicitly to these topics very much, let alone along racial lines. So um, went to seminary in Jackson, Mississippi at Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, got a great education in some ways, but also a very difficult education in others as I started speaking out more publicly about race, formed what became The Witness um, and uh, became a target because I was writing about these things, I was podcasting about these things, I was speaking about these things. And then everything, you know, this national conversation hits with Trayvon Martin, then Mike Brown, the Black Lives Matter movement, the 2016 presidential cycle, all of that. Um, but in the midst of it, I rediscovered my love for history, enrolled in the PhD program at the University of Mississippi, wrote two books while uh, in grad school when I should have been writing my dissertation. Um, and uh, well, the first was The Color of Compromise, which talked about racism in the US church throughout US history. And the second one, uh, as you mentioned, was How to Fight Racism, which is an answer to that practical question. What do we do? Uh, now, I spend most of my time writing at my newsletter. So uh, hopefully, folks will understand this is the beginning of a conversation. And you can go to jamartisby.substack.com uh, to keep up with all my latest writing and thoughts around race, religion, politics, justice, those kinds of things. Jamar, thank you for sharing your story with us. Before we talk about the Witness Foundation, I do want to talk about The Color of Compromise. It's a book that changed me. Um, you open the book with a story of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Charles Morgan. Can you tell us the story and explain what it illustrates about the American church's complicity in racism? So the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing was um, a racist terrorist attack that took place in 1963 in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, it rocked the nation because a white supremacist planted dynamite at a church and when it exploded it killed four uh, little black girls ages uh, 13 and 14 um, and injured many others and of course traumatized an entire community and it was one of these things that was so horrific that even by u.s standards of racism it was egregious and so it pulled the nation's attention toward racism because it was such a shocking act. And yet, it shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone. Uh, so there was a, a white lawyer named Charles Morgan Jr. who spoke later that week and talked about how the entire white community, in particular the Christian white community of Birmingham, was complicit in that attack. And he said to his listeners, his, his, his audience at this lunch, he said, uh, who did it? Who threw that bomb? And he said, the answer should be, we all did it. And what he was getting at was not that everybody had literally physically planted the dynamite, but that they'd had many, many opportunities to confront racism before and perhaps prevent a terrorist attack like this. And to the degree that people failed to act, 
or were even complicit in other ways, like laughing at racist jokes or tolerating um, racism among family members and, and colleagues, uh, they held some sort of responsibility, not for what they did, but perhaps for what they refrained from doing. And so that's the idea of complicity, is that you don't have to be the one wearing the the white robe and hood or lighting the cross on fire or tying the noose for a lynching to to participate in a system that continually dehumanizes black people um the failure to act in the midst of injustice is itself an act of injustice um and in that way we should see we should all of us see ourselves as potentially being part of the solution and deeply asking ourselves if we're not acting, if we're not actively fighting against racism, in what ways are we supporting a racist system? Now that makes a lot of people upset <laughs> because the implications are vast. Because A, we can unwittingly be supporting something that consciously we would oppose. Uh, most people you ask will be opposed to racism in any way, shape, or form. But when you um, suggest that a failure to act or to um, be more confrontational toward racism can, in fact, perpetuate the system, well, that that that's difficult. Um, it, it, it implies that even without knowing it, we can be inflicting harm. But that's the case. Right. If you think about a blind spot, we get that language. Um, you know, it, it, we can reference driving a car, and there are blind spots in the car where you can't see, or if you don't physically check, you can't see other cars or objects that are in your blind spot. And so you may change lanes, let's say, and unintentionally strike another car. Well, you didn't mean to, but there was still harm done. Um, and the same thing can happen in our race relations. It's not that we always mean to, but there can be harm done even without intentionality, which to me is not, um, you know, a reason for further denial or trying to sort of defend oneself. It's a, it's a reason in humility to say, wow, um, I could be missing something. How can I learn from others to, to get a bigger picture and be more active in the fight against racism. That's my hope. In the book, you introduce the arc of racial justice. Can you define the arc and describe the difference between reconciliation and justice? Thank you. Um, if folks haven't read the first book, The Color of Compromise, I jokingly say that it, the entire book is a setup to get to the last chapter, which explains the arc of racial justice. Um, the first 10 chapters of the book really talk about, it's a historical survey from the colonial era on up to the present day, showing how white Christians have frequently um, been complicit or compromised with racism in such a way that that it was perpetuated throughout history. Um, everything from the 1667 law by the Virginia Assembly that said baptism would not emancipate enslaved Black, Native American, or mixed-race people, to the um, splitting of the major denominations 
Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians prior to the Civil War over the question of whether slavery would persist in this nation on up to the civil rights movement and today. And then the question comes, well, if we look at this centuries-long scope of complicity and compromise with racism, and the evidence from the primary sources and the historical documents is undeniable, what now do we do about racism? So instead of just giving like this list of dozens of actions one could take, I, I try to propose a framework that I think is helpful called the ARC of Racial Justice. It stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. Awareness is, of course, all of the knowledge and information that we need to understand race, racism, white supremacy. It's watching documentaries, listening to this podcast and sharing it, hopefully, uh, reading articles and books, all of those things. Um, but that's not enough. You just can't be, you just can't have a big head about this stuff. You've, you've got to have a big heart, too. That's the relationships aspect. So much of this is about people. I'll get to the policies and systems in a moment. But at the, at the end of the day, why are we pursuing racial justice? It's because we want people to flourish. We want people to be kept from harm. We want people to be healthy and whole. Uh, so relationships means, particularly for white people, cultivating, and it takes so much intention to cultivate um, relationships with people from different racial and ethnic groups. There's such a long history from redlining to Jim Crow segregation of white people doing everything they can to shield themselves off from people of color. So it's gonna take at least as much effort and intentionality to actually develop healthy relationships with people. And by the way, it's not just your one black friend or your one friend of color, it's a network of relations. You gotta know multiple people in meaningful ways in order for your own perspective to expand and shift. Um, for black people and people of color, that means partnering with one another. Like we cannot do this work on our own and building those relationships. And lastly, uh, we can't just have big heads. We can't just have big hearts. We gotta have strong hands about this. Um, commitment means not just staying the course, but it means changing policies, changing systems, changing institutions to be more racially equitable. And a big disconnect, especially among Christians, is um, understanding racism purely as individual and interpersonal. It's an attitude thing. It's one person not liking another. It's using a racial slur. It's treating someone badly because of their skin color. All of that is true. And racism takes on institutional forms and systemic forms through policies. This is not just at the federal government or the state government level. This is at corporations and organizations. This is even among churches. Every organization has policies, and those policies can work toward racial equity or they can be impediments. So I think you need all three, awareness, relationships, and commitment to effectively fight racism and support racial justice. Yeah, I remember reading, Jamar, in your book, I think the, the header was uh, Rethinking or Reconsidering Racial Reconciliation, and you referenced uh, another book that was, has been important to me, which is um, Divided by Faith, in mm -hmm. misanalysis, and, and it seems to me that they suggest that white Christians perhaps uniquely have misunderstood the problem of and therefore the solution to racism 
and and that we have a specific opportunity. Um, the the ark is especially helpful to to move us from the R to the C to say that there's it's not sufficient um, to pursue racial reconciliation. We we need to do more. Right. Uh, if if we're to be good friends to yeah. people of color, I'm not engaging in relationships in a healthy way if I'm not also engaging the systems that negatively affect my my friends, my brothers and sisters of color. Would you agree That's with right. or, or add to that? Absolutely would agree with it. So what happens uh, when talk about racial reconciliation interacts and intersects with white evangelicalism is what Emerson and Smith talk about is a, is a cultural toolkit. And uh, among white evangelicals, there's a heavy emphasis on individualism, personal responsibility slash culpability, um, anti-institutionalism or anti-systemic explanations for racial injustice or any kind of injustice, right? So you'll get a higher proportion of white evangelicals saying that people are poor because of their own lack of effort versus um, any sort of environmental factors, um, like a lack of jobs or poor public education system. Uh, you'll get um, a lot of white evangelicals who, as I said before, understand racism mainly as an attitudinal problem, which means that if, if, if the problem is attitudes, then the solution is changing your attitude not changing a system, not changing a policy or a practice, right? So, so you're right, there's, um, there's, almost a, there's more of a propensity within white evangelicalism to have these, what I think are unhelpful ideas around racial justice. Really, they don't talk about racial justice, to your point. They talk about racial reconciliation, which again is that focus on the individual and interpersonal, because when evangelicals tend to talk about racial reconciliation, that's about getting... Uh, people of different races and ethnicities in the same room at the same event you know in the same environment or as i like to say it's about getting different hues in the pews so if we can all come together on sunday and worship we can walk out pat ourselves on the back but then go back to our lives monday through saturday and it's just as segregated just as unequal as as anyone else so what i talk about is is not racial reconciliation but racial justice where if justice is the goal, if flourishing of all people is the goal, then you unite around a shared mission. And as you're pursuing that shared mission, you look to your left, you look to your right, like, oh, there's people who are different from me, not only racially and ethnically, but culturally and experientially and, and, and economically and all these things. And it's, I think it's a more meaningful unity to gather around that mission of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself, uh, then to make diversity or reconciliation in and of itself the goal. To me, diversity is a byproduct of pursuing justice. Reconciliation is what comes along with pursuing justice. So we need to talk about racial justice if we want to get authentic diversity, unity, and reconciliation. Let's talk about why people don't do more 
something mm. else that you wrote that was really striking mm. to me that, that stuck with me was this. You write that when it comes to racism, the American church does not have a how-to problem, but a want-to problem. And that fear, fear is the primary reason why Christians of all colors do not do more to fight racism. Fear of man mm. and fear of failure. Can you comment mm. on this? Like, What have you seen that caused you to write that? Yeah, so there are people who are racist um, that might shock some people who think racism is strictly a problem of the past. Uh, and so that's a factor. I think even folks who are very clearly racist in their attitudes and actions, fear is a big part of that. They fear rejection from the in-group that they see themselves as part of. Now that extends even to folks who um, want to be anti-racist. I think that fear extends also to people who want to see themselves as not racist, but they're not more vocal or they're not more active in fighting against racism, again, because they, in some sense and on some level, fear the response of those in their community whether that's a church community, a work community, a political community, because uh, their fears aren't unfounded. I mean, we can see throughout history and even today, when people speak up for racial justice, you tend to become a target. And so there are, there, there, there are um, repercussions to think about. Uh, but, you know, as people of faith, as Christians, we're told to fear God, not people, right? Um, and I think the other factor is a fear, not of what people will say or do or criticize you for what you do, but a fear of getting it wrong, um, particularly for white people who may be new to this racial justice work. Uh, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I'm trying to be helpful, but I'm actually hurting or causing more problems? And those are legitimate fears, too. I mean, it, it has happened before that people who try to help uh, as as well-intentioned as they are uh, end up doing more harm than good. I see that manifest most often when um, white people or others take attention, resources, and influence from the people who are most affected by an issue. Uh, so it will be the wealthy person or the person with a bigger platform or profile or the person who's white who comes in trying to help and instead of supporting folks who are already doing the work or uplifting the, the people whose voices have traditionally been muted or silenced, um, they kind of suck all the attention and suck all the resources for themselves and they don't often do this un, uh, intentionally, it's often unintentional, but those are some ways that, that folks who are trying to help can, can end up perhaps doing harm. And so there's a fear, you know, I don't wanna be that person. So it's maybe easier or safer not to do anything at all rather than try to do something and get it wrong. But I'll say, you learn by doing, and you may get it wrong, but if you keep in it and you keep at it, you'll develop your capacity and you'll get more effective in your racial justice work. You mentioned resources, which takes us to our next question. 
you started the Witness Foundation, whose mission is to identify, train, and fund black Christian leaders based on your experience as a black Christian. So tell us, what is the Witness Foundation? Why did you start it? The Witness Foundation, I think, is exceptional in the landscape of racial justice work, particularly around what Christians are doing. I mean, just, I, I don't know, does it strike people as exceptional when I say we searched the nation for five black Christian leaders who are all the head of nonprofits doing good work in the community, uh, everything from helping folks uh, re-enter the community after incarceration to um, uh, disability advocacy, specifically in black churches, to working with youth and the arts, you name it. We scoured the nation for, for, for these folks, and we're giving these black Christian leaders who we've selected as our inaugural cohort of fellows, we're giving them $50,000 each for each of two years. So a total of $100,000 investment. And in addition, offering coaching and um, executive coaching and a, and a, and a cohort of uh, peers and colleagues to to learn from and to develop a community with. I don't know of any other similar sort of no strings attached program geared specifically toward black Christian leaders. And the reason why is a couple of things. Number one, um, we'll talk about reparations. We'll talk about the financial hurdles that uh, Black people in general face and Black not, uh, Christian nonprofit leaders in particular face. And we wanted to do something about that money problem. Very basic. The other factor, the other why behind the Witness Foundation is I still think there is a place for Black leaders and Black Christian leaders in the modern-day civil rights movement. Uh, you can go back to the 1950s and 60s, which was sort of the high point of uh, the Black church's involvement in uh, civil rights activism for many people. That didn't go away. There's still tremendous resources in the Black Christian tradition to help us address issues of justice to this day. And we believe that as much as Black Christian leaders have done with a dearth of funds and resources, imagine how much they could do if they actually had adequate resources. And so that's what we want to see is a practice in proving what's possible. How have white Christians received your work and how have you responded to that, especially in the Leave Loud series? I'd love to to hear you comment on that series specifically. The responses I get from white Christians are a spectrum. Uh, at the extremes are the people who push back against everything I say, um, simply because it's talking about race in, in a way they don't like. At the other extreme are people who are completely on board, uh, folks like you who are actually initiating and forming different programs and initiatives uh, based on some of this knowledge that we're, we're making more public. The majority of people are somewhere in between. So these are people generally of goodwill. They might be early on in their racial justice journey. They might be fairly ignorant and um, uh, about all of the history and, and, and the dynamics here, but they want to learn. 
there are a lot of people who are in the midst of questioning their church tradition or their denomination tradition and what they that that tradition has done or said about race and they're in a process of saying well how can we do different but they they don't quite know what to do I would encourage you again to pick up the book how to fight racism because it's precisely meant for that what do we do well here are some next steps that are very very practical um they're open they're receptive they're it's new so there may be some resistance, but they want to understand. That's most of what I get. Uh, the folks who oppose what I get are, are the loudest, I'll say that. And they take up an inordinate amount of time and energy sometimes. Um, but we also recognize context matters. So we're sitting here recording this in 2022. And just in the past 10 years, we've seen incredibly significant, often tragic um, circumstances around racism. I, I think of um, the Unite the Right rally. I think of the Emanuel Nine massacre. I think of most recently um, the, the massacre in, in Buffalo at a, at a grocery store. I think of numerous events that have pulled the nation's attention toward the ongoing issue of racism. And I think about the church's response, uh, various churches, various denominations, which have almost doubled down on the racial status quo. So most recently, it's this anti-critical race theory crusade, um, which isn't really about critical race theory. It's about a certain kind of um, uh, person who who feels uncomfortable because of the way we're talking about race or the changes that we're asking for. All of that led to the Leave Loud movement. So there was an article in, I believe it was 2019 by a New York Times reporter, Campbell Robertson, called A Quiet Exodus. He was talking specifically about this quiet trickle of Black people leaving their predominantly white church spaces specifically in light of Trumpism and the Trump presidency and the way evangelicals rallied around this man who has said incredibly racist things um, and supported policies that were incredibly detrimental to black people and people of color. And so black people were quietly leaving, but that these things kept happening and we weren't seeing changes in predominantly white Christian spaces. So at one point in 2020, I said, you know, that quiet exodus, we, we need to let people know what's happening. And so that quiet exodus needs to turn into a leave loud. And that's what we're doing. We're just telling our stories, you know, in, in, in church circles. We're giving our testimony about the harm that we've experienced in these white Christian spaces, um, the gaslighting to where we will take our experiences as black people, whether it's an encounter with law enforcement or the pain that we feel vicariously because of some uh, racist event that, that is in uh, the news at the moment, and it will be almost summarily dismissed or denied. And the pain that causes to know that you have pain, but others are denying it even exists, or they're saying you're, you're inflating it, you're making too big, you're being too sensitive about it. And this is in the church, which makes it an even more um, 
even more acute sense of betrayal because it's supposed to be spiritual family. I mean, I have stories after stories of people I've sang with, prayed with, they've held my child, we've been in Bible studies together, we've worshiped together, who can display a complete ignorance of my lived reality as a Black man in America and a complete indifference to the things that I and others say will help alleviate some of that burden. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a spiritual pain that even years later, after some of these events, I'm still trying to process and, and, and make sense of. So countless black people have experienced that and are experiencing that. And so we just encourage them through our podcast, through our blog to tell their stories because we want to call these churches and Christian spaces to a higher standard. And unless they know the harm they're causing, they'll never have the opportunity to address it. We also want to let others know that we're not going to silently take injustice or abuse, particularly at the hands of other Christians, uh, that we have voices and we're going to use them to speak up for justice and for our dignity. Jamar, I, I so appreciate you, um, who you are, what you're doing, uh, the books that you've written, the podcast, uh, you know, all, all your work has been a blessing to me personally and uh, have enjoyed the, the time we spent together. So Jamar, thank you for your time today. Thank you for being a friend and a teacher. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's all for today. Any last words from you, Jamar, for, for our listeners? I wonder if uh, it would be okay if I put on my historian hat for a second to talk about reparations. Come on. <laughs> um, I know I've talked a lot here, but I just, I think it's important to understand like the situation that we see economically right now has a history. And so um, as we record this, it's, it's just days after the Juneteenth holiday. And of course, that's the uh, oldest celebration of Black emancipation in the country. And the work of emancipation only began with an announcement of freedom. The real work of emancipation has to include the financial element, the shadow of the Civil War, just after the Civil War. and it was the 13th Amendment that actually abolished slavery, is that enslaved people were declared free, but in many ways it was a a declaration in word only because recently freed black people were not given the means of supporting themselves. So all of a sudden you went from enslaved to free, but now what? You didn't have property, you didn't have home, you didn't really have tools of your own, you didn't have land. We can think of the 40 acres and a mule phrase, which is probably traced back to uh, special order number 15, which was given by General Sherman, uh, also of the Union Army, in January of 1865. What special field, what special order number 15 did was a lot, 400,000 acres of confiscated land 
from the Confederacy, from plantation owners, from Charleston, South Carolina, on down to Florida, allotted those acres to um, black people who had fled from slavery and crossed Union lines for safety. And the Union Army was really trying to find a way to get these black folks off their hands because they couldn't care for these thousands of people, feed them, shelter them, clothe them, put them to work, et cetera. So they, um, union leaders actually met with black Christian leaders, Methodists and Baptist, Baptist preachers mainly, and asked, hey, what should we do? And these folks, these black Christians leaders said, give us land. We want to work for a living. We want to be productive and we want to make our own way. And so that's what the, the general order did and allotted approximately 40 acres to each family. There were provisions to borrow mules to help cultivate the land, et cetera, et cetera. No sooner had that field order been issued in January than President Lincoln was assassinated in April, 1865. Who takes over? Andrew Johnson, his vice president. Now, Lincoln chose Andrew Johnson to sort of appease the South and Confederates uh, Andrew Johnson was from Tennessee. He was an avowed white supremacist, but he was seen as a palatable politician, potentially to, to Confederates, so because the emphasis was on reunification. Um, if the Union won, how would you bring the North and the South back together? So chose Andrew Johnson. When Lincoln is assassinated, Johnson becomes president and almost immediately rescinds that special field order. So black people never get the land. They never get uh, 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 an opportunity to 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 um, become economically self-sufficient. And we got to understand what was race based chattel slavery and what made it so resilient. It was fundamentally an economically exploitative system where enslaved laborers did all the work and didn't get any pay. It was theft of labor. And what it did was increase the profits of plantation owners and slaveholders. And what folks need to realize is that theft of labor, that theft of wages was never repaired. Nobody compensated enslaved black people who were doing this for generations. Nobody compensated us. Didn't happen in 1866 when you could have handed a check directly to an enslaved person. You could say, where were you last year? <laughs> You'd be like, okay, you qualify. And every generation of Americans has kicked the can down the road to now. We're over 160 years later. And it's this complicated, convoluted, how do you figure out who would get it? How much would it be? All of this stuff. But it's never been addressed. And folks got to understand that taking uh, away certain restrictions like like um, dismantling race-based segregation, uh, you know, passing the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, all of all that does is take away certain barriers. It never repairs the damage that has been done. Uh, Malcolm X, I'm paraphrasing. You know, if you stick a knife nine inches in my back, pull it out six inches, that's not progress. He even goes on to say. If you pull the knife completely out, that's not progress. He says progress is healing the wound that the blow made. So I simply ask for anybody who's afraid of the R word, when did that wound get healed? And understand that taking away restrictions is not 
healing the wound. That's pulling the knife out three inches and calling it repair. It's not. It's never been done. And so what generation is going to take up that charge? And if the federal government is not going to do it, are Christians off the hook? If we know a wrong has been done and that Christians have been an integral part of that wrong being done historically, are we not going to act? So I think that's a challenge for our generation to take up and, and, and to really decide, are we going to pass this on, this problem, this crisis on to another generation while people suffer? Or are we going to do something about it ourselves? Mm. That'll preach, Jamar. Well, that's all for episode three. You can contact me at reparationsnownwa at gmail.com. Come back for episode four, a community conversation with black Christian leaders in Northwest Arkansas and with you, our listeners, about how white Christians in Northwest Arkansas have responded to racism, especially since the death of George Floyd. Next time. Thanks. Locking in on the sovereign reign of the king of all kings, trusting he'll make right all things. He'll make right all things.